from DMT Media and Audio Boom. This is the Dead Man Talking podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. This is a special listener Q&A episode. So if you're new to Dead Man Talking, press stop now. Go back to the beginning of the series as this episode is packed full of spoilers. Thanks for all your messages on last week's finale. We're happy so many of you enjoyed it and like us, excited about where Proclaimed Justice and the Houston Law School will take things and what this could mean for Andres and Diamantina. And we really appreciate all the questions you've sent in. We've got loads to get through, so let's crack on. So Pete, the producer, you've heard about Pete throughout the series, but I don't think you've ever heard from him. He's on hand in London with all your questions, so I'm going to call him up while you listen to our wonderful theme song. Hello, Alex. Hello, Pete. How's London? Cold, snowy, wet. How's Texas? Do you have a polar vortex as well? Uh, we've got something. I'm not sure if it's that, but it's uh, pretty cold and grey and miserable and um, probably a lot nicer on your veranda in Texas. It's going to be about 50 today, so we are not experiencing any of this winter storm, I'm happy to say. How's the real star of the podcast doing? By that, I mean Scruff. People always talk to me about Scruff. He- turns up in adverts and last week we heard him barking how's he doing scruff (laughs) scruff is good actually it was kind of funny because i was just talking to john hardin again from proclaim justice the other day and i said it was funny because when before that episode launched i was listening to an early cut of it and i had my earphones on and i heard this barking and i kept looking around and shouting shut up to scruff and realizing that you'd actually put him in the the episode and it wasn't him barking it was barking on the tape um but he's good and actually we just got his <laughs> i got a dna testing kit for christmas scruff is a mutt and we've never known what he is he's just a scruffy mutt and we finally got the dna results back uh, yesterday and scruff is uh 25 rottweiler <laughs> which for anyone who's ever seen a picture of scruff i'm actually going to post a picture of him on the facebook page so people can see if they're interested but um he's 25 rottweiler 12% Australian stubby-tailed something and 25 uh, 12% spaniel, cocker spaniel or something. And did you do the DNA test on yourself? And are you also 25% Rottweiler? <laughs> I am. Pitbull, 25% Pitbull. Uh, right, enough about your dog. Uh, lots of great questions that people have sent in and let's move on to the first one. The first one is from Russell Dialbertanson. He says, if back in 2003 you had the journalism experience that you do today, what would you have done differently? Um, If I could have foreseen doing exactly what we've done with the podcast, then nothing. Because I think, as I've said many times, I think my naive kind of open-ended questions actually elicited far more sort of wide-ranging answers from Resendiz. So, you know, things like, can you estimate how many people you've killed? Can you give me a more precise location on the border of Arizona and California? Um, But today I would 
probably, if I didn't know that I was doing this for this particular podcast, I'd, I'd have probably got into the weeds more about his case. I'd have, you know, definitely looked more or, or wanted to know more about the insanity defence, which wasn't successful, which, you know, if they were successful in that, he wouldn't have got the death penalty. Um, I'd definitely have wanted to know more about the childhood trauma, which we touched on in the first episode of the podcast um, and sort of his backstory. Do you think when he told you about killing Daryl Colahaco, if you were doing that today, you'd have followed it up with sort of questions about the specifics? Certainly my situation was different back then. I was I knew I was only going to be in Texas for a, a, a finite amount of time. You know, I live here permanently now. So, um, you know, logistically, it was difficult for me. I went back to the UK, moved back to the UK, fairly soon after interviewing Resendiz and so logistically it was I couldn't have gone and just done an interview with Diamantina you know I, I wrote to her um and I wrote to Andres and never heard back from him as you know um I mean today yeah if I was doing it from you know the first time I interviewed Resendiz was this week uh I definitely would have would have sort of followed up that that kind of line of uh questioning not just with him but afterwards as well i mean as it happened it's kind of interesting um i'm not going to name them but there was one charity that that deal with um uh, wrongful convictions out there that i was in touch with earlier um and asked them to to look at the the, the mascara case and there was pushback from them and and you know I, I had one email from them that basically said uh none of us can understand why you didn't do anything back in 2003 and it was almost as if like that was the reason they weren't going to do anything now. Uh, and, and I thought to myself, if you listen to the podcast, you'll realise that actually I, I did what my job was to do back then, which was to write a short, you know, a short story about Resendiz and the, and the confession that he'd given me. And I did that. And it was published in a magazine in London. And that was the end of it. I lived back in the UK. My job was done. But it was the same with Mark Babinek. And, I, and, I, and as you know from the podcast uh, series, he he articulated why... For him, it was it was the sim it was a similar thing. He wrote his story. He was in Texas, so he was able to follow up with prosecutors and defense attorneys, and nothing happened. And as he said in his own words, "You move on." As a journalist, you know he was covering one of the busiest markets as far as a journalist is concerned in in America, and he had other stories to do. And now he doesn't even work for the Associated Press. He works in oil and gas. So you know he. Um, He's always thought about it, but there's only so much you can do. So, um, so yeah, you know, I, it probably would be different um, as far as my circumstances are concerned now in how I tackled that confession. But I did what I did back in 2003. I'm just glad that we could revisit it now. Next one from Keith Miller via Twitter. On your own personal level, I'd assume there was a huge emotional investment what sort of impact has this investigation had on your overall quality of life? Me and Pete genuinely never thought uh, that we'd get where we are now with the Colahaco case. So certainly there's a sense of relief. I'm sure, Pete, you feel the same, that all the work that we put in, we sort of feel vindicated somehow that our hunch that he was telling the truth uh, and that there seemed to be holes in the case against Andres and the case against Diamantina was sort of borne out. So certainly that's a positive impact. But I also know um, that we need to keep pushing to get this habeas appeal launched. So, you know, just because the podcast has ended or is about to end, um, that doesn't mean sort of the kind of legal 
stuff has ended. It hasn't happened yet. So it's important actually to tell your friends about the podcast series, spread the word, because the more people that listen, you know, the more chance there is that something will be done. Um, but I think that this sort of made me think a bit, Keith's question made me think a bit about the impact of interviewing people on death row that I've been doing now for sort of 15, 16 years. I've witnessed an execution. Um, I've written about uh, trauma for a long time and that can have an impact. So I was just actually going to use that as an opportunity to name check um, a really amazing organization, uh, particularly for journalists or reporters that are listening to the podcast called the Dart Center, D-A-R-T. Um, and they're based out of Columbia University in New York. I've been affiliated with them for a long time, um, but they exist for two reasons. One, to help journalists become better at um, reporting on traumatized people um so sort of a, have a deeper understanding of trauma and its impact so that they can become better at, at reporting on that but also they help journalists who cover trauma deal with the impact that that might have on themselves so um you know everyone from the war correspondent to the person that covers child abuse to the person that covers particularly horrendous criminal trials or um crime stories or whatever um sort of self-care tips and stuff anyway i urge you to sort of check out the website at uh, the dart center website and have a look at what they do they've got lots of tip sheets and stuff on there as well so they're really helpful for what i do um, and what about the impact it has on your overall quality of life when you are speaking to some really quite unpleasant people who've done some terrible things is it something that that affects you on a on a day-to-day -day level or do you think after so many years you're used to it uh I think I'm I think I'm used to it but I think also I, I'm able to compartmentalize it so I write about some other sort of pretty traumatic stuff aside from um stuff on sort of criminal justice and um I've seen some pretty kind of unpleasant upsetting things but I'm able to compartmentalize it and part of my sort of self-care methods are to have you know a big circle of friends and um you know, lots of people to talk to. People that also that cover the same stuff. I've got a lot of friends who are journalists who cover similar sort of ground and it's good to kind of um, uh, talk to them regularly and stuff and just sort of decompress that way. Nice. Next question is from Barney Payne, big friend of the show. Did you regret not managing to find and ultimately get Kathy Burnett and her students to look over the Mascaro case sooner? Um, I don't think that... I would have been in a position to sort of try and get a law school uh, to look at a case um, and the, and the amount of evidence and, and, and in the trial transcripts, the amount of uh, you know, just the sheer number of pages that you have to kind of look through and go through with a fine tooth comb. I wouldn't have been able to do that had we not been doing this off the back of a, a podcast that had already sort of become fairly successful we had already had lots of listeners and lots of kind of engagement with people there was sort of publicity around it um and I think that was part of the reason that I was able to get Kathy and her students to look at it you know this we're working on this podcast series we're kind of nearing the end there's only so much I can do you know that I feel that a lawyer needs to look at this now and I I'm not I'm not saying Kathy wouldn't have done that uh had I got in touch with her you know, when I first interviewed Resendez, she may well, she may well have done, but, um, but, uh, no, I think that, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure if you asked Diamantina and Andres, they'd say, yeah, why the hell didn't anyone do this, you know, 
15, 20 years ago. Um, but it is what it is. And we, we've managed to get some sort of movement on this stuff now. And I'm just glad that that's happened. They, they seem really glad this has happened as well. You know, Diamantine has written to me. Um, she really appreciates all the kind of effort that people are going to, to look into the case again. Same with um, Andres that I've heard from his family. Second part of Barney's question. Do you regret losing the tape for so many years? Yeah, I do actually. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I would, I lived in the UK. I went, as you know, I moved back to the UK um, uh, for a few years after the Resenders interview, but we actually moved back again to Texas. Uh, I still didn't have the tape then, but certainly I was writing a lot more about criminal justice. Um, and I think that had I had the tape then, you know, I probably would have revisited this um, a while ago. We've got a couple of questions on when you met Resenders now. First one's from Morgan Pease. What was it like to sit across and speak with a known serial killer? If you had a lot of emotions, I would love to know. Cheers from Tennessee. Um, I was nervous. You know, I'd, I, I'd only been to death row a couple of times before interviewing Resendez. Um, That was the only prison I think I'd ever visited in 2003. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was, I was nervous. Um, certainly. And what was interesting was he wasn't scary. Um, people think of Resendez as a monster and, you know, rightly so in some respects. And they think of that you have, if you've never been to death row, you have this image that everyone who is on death row is this monster. But the truth is that when you meet these people, I've never met anybody on death row who didn't seem uh, boringly normal um, in most cases, just like me or you. And in a way, that's sort of more scary, I think, that Resendez is, is the sort of person that you could have met and just not remembered, uh, just a, a unmemorable, but certainly not this this ferocious, scary monster that you'd sort of imagine. Um, but that makes me think, actually, um, that you should all listen to next week's episode because I interviewed Resendez for an hour and I have my own opinion of what he was like but you're going to hear from somebody next week who knew him a bit better and has a different opinion. Little tease there from Alex um, and the next question we don't actually have a name um, we've lost it but it's from someone in Australia when you first spoke to Resendez what was his expression was he composed did he seem to have contempt for what he's done and was he afraid to die? Um. He was very composed, um, smiling, willing to talk, very matter of fact, uh, not just about describing mundane things about, you know, what he had for breakfast that day, but also describing the murders. There was no difference, actually, in his demeanour when he was describing mundane things about his routine in prison and when he was describing killing somebody, um, just very matter of fact. Um, and you know, was he afraid to die? I asked him that and he said he feared God. That's all. So I don't know whether that means he feared uh, the needle, the actual physic. you know, the that he feared physically being executed or whether he feared the repercussions in what he thought was going to be, you know, the afterlife. All right. Next one is along similar lines. It's from 
Jacqueline Cripe. Hi, Alex. It's been mentioned that Resendez didn't have remorse because he was killing in the name of God. However, I was wondering if he had remorse when he found out that the paediatric surgeon wasn't really an abortionist. What was his reaction? Maybe I missed it, but did he realise he got that one wrong? Um, That's a good question. I didn't ask him that, but I can say that I'm fairly certain that there was no remorse and that he was adamant that he was justified in killing Claudia Benton. And I say this because we deliberately left out some audio in the podcast um, from my interview with Resendiz where he continued to justify attacking Christopher Meyer and Holly Dunn in Kentucky. Uh, We felt that it was disrespectful to Holly to include it. But, um, you know, when I interviewed him, which was three years before his execution, uh, there was certainly no remorse in that respect. He still was sort of justifying it in his own mind and to me. All right, still on Resendez. This is from David Pavey on Facebook. Resendez was nearly illiterate in both Spanish and English. Could that be why he couldn't recall the train stations that he stopped at? And the second part, also, many have described him as highly intelligent. How did this intelligence manifest in him when you met him? In what ways was he highly intelligent? Okay, I'll take the first part of that question first. So, um... Resendiz was uh, illiterate, David says, and could be could that be why he couldn't recall the train stations he stopped at? Possibly. Um, but as Chuck Weaver told us in an earlier episode, um, repetition can cloud specifics. So in other words, you know, Resendiz killed so many times that he probably forgot the specifics of each individual crime. But not only that, I mean, this was somebody who, quite aside from the killing was a drifter and was crossing the US by freight train constantly. Um, And so, you know, we have no idea how many times he crisscrossed the nation by train or how many cities he went to, how many places he went to on the rail network multiple times. But I'm sure that, uh, you know, each one would sort of blend into the other and he just wouldn't be able to remember specifics. So, you know, for example, Blythe. Blythe is a good example because he couldn't remember the name of the town. He just remembers getting off, jumping off. And of course, this wasn't, none of these were official stops. So it wasn't like he was jumping off and seeing a sign that said, welcome to Blythe. He's jumping off at random. So he's jumping off when the train slows down in a town that he, you know, may not really know where he is. And then just walking to a place where people are probably directing him to the the river or whatever, um, and 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 that's it. So I'm sure that's why, probably more so than any uh, intelligence issue, I think that's probably why he's not recalling specifics in certain cases. Second part of the question: um, How did the intelligence manifest? Uh, because people described him as high, highly intelligent. Um, I mean, I've interviewed many inmates on death row, some with low IQ, some with high high IQs. Resendiz wasn't well-educated, but apparently he had a high IQ. Um, all I can say is his responses were very thoughtful and articulate. I mean, particularly considering, considering English was his second language. Um, but I, I really can't comment on sort of, I don't know what his IQ was, um, but certainly, you know, he was in the upper end of, people that I interview I've interviewed on death row in terms of the way he kind of articulated his responses. All right, next one from Ahmed Arbinali. While Anghel Resendez was doing his killing spree, do you think he was using the mind of a cult, for example, Charles Manson? 
No, I mean, he wasn't inspired by any cult leader. They called him a mission-driven serial killer. So he was definitely sort of possessed with this religious fervor. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, that that's what drove him. I really believe that's what drove him, uh, was his belief that he was doing the work of God rather than... Uh, and, you, you know, you could say that sort of cult-like in, in, in the way he was kind of doing this. And he was very sort of single-minded and blinkered in what he was doing, really believed he was doing the right thing. Um, so yes and no, I suppose. All right, final question on Resenders before we move on. This is from Charlotte Teller Ars from Denmark. Why was Resendez only charged with one murder? They clearly knew he committed more, else he would not have made it to the most wanted list. It must be unsatisfying for the families of the other victims that he was never put to justice for those crimes. Um, this is a really good question. So it comes down to time and money. Um, and I actually, I've got some notes to read you here. So the death penalty in Texas, uh, and you'll see why I'm going to, why I'm telling you this, but in, in order to be eligible for the death penalty in Texas, you have to kill. Um, the victim has to be a peace officer or fireman killed while on duty. Um, the murder has to occur while the defendant was committing or attempting to commit another crime like a kidnapping, burglary, robbery, uh, sexual assault or arson. Uh, it has to be a murder for hire, like a hitman. Um, it, the murder has to occur during the course of a actual or attempted prison break. Um, multiple murders have occurred as a result of the defendant's acts, or the victim was younger than 10 years old. So with that in mind, the Benton murder, because there was a sexual assault as well, uh, qualified Resendez for the death penalty. So um, what the prosecution would have done is find the murder that he committed where it was cut and dried. And in this case, there was DNA evidence uh, and a confession. I mean, it was it was a very easy case to convict him on. And it's also important to remember that his attorneys admitted he killed nine people in total at the time of his trial, so at the time of his sentencing. So the names and the details of these other crimes were brought up. Now, admittedly, there have been since then, while he was on death row, there were more admissions. And of course, as we've like revealed in the podcast, there could have been even more than that. Uh, and yes, you're right. Those the victims, potential victims' families uh, are never going to get that sort of closure if if that's what, you know, closure looks like to see Resendez being convicted of those particular crimes. But also the cost involved, you know, um, it costs an average of $2.3 million um, to put somebody on death row. And that includes all their uh, trial costs, the appeal costs, the investigations, keeping them in prison until their execution, cost of the execution. So the whole thing is about estimated to be around 2.3 million, I think. Um, so, you know, that cost will go up if you have several convictions. So there's a cost element to it as well. Should we take a break? Sure. Back after this. A brief word from one of our sponsors. Hiring can be pretty time-consuming. You post a job to several online job boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Then you have to sort through those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why 
you should do the smart thing and go to ziprecruiter.com slash DMT. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education and experience and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US and this rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash DMT. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, we're going to move away from Resendez now. We've got some questions on Andres Mascoro and Diamantina Colahaco. The first one is from Brad W on Twitter. Dear Dead Man Podcast, if you spend 20 years in prison as an innocent man and the only thing standing between you and freedom is a language barrier, why not spend part of that 20 years to learn the language? Yeah, um, you you might remember Kathy uh, Burnett picked up on the fact in the court transcripts that Mascaro had a low IQ. Um, we think he had, a, a at the very least, a fifth grade education. Uh, and I also think maybe you just give up hope. A lot of these people that are condemned to death or to life in prison, you know, I've seen a lot of people who just give up. There are people who I've, a guy actually I interviewed fairly recently on death row, who I know just up until my interview just never wanted to leave his cell for anything. Um, he's basically given up. All right. So next question from Misty Davis, email from her. How is Andres's family going to do anything to help if they are in the US undocumented? Um, well, actually, it, it you know, while they're going to be kept in the loop and they'll obviously be, um, you know, if, if uh, and when proclaimed justice uh, and Kathy Burnett and her law students um, take this on and, and, and launch a habeas appeal, that's between them and Andres. Andres is the client. Um, proclaimed justice are going to be hopefully finding the attorney. Um, Kathy and her law students are going to be doing the research and writing the brief. So actually, you know, Mascaro's family uh, have nothing to do with this. They, they're going to be kept in the loop because they're his family, but they don't have to pay for this. They don't have to um, to be involved in this. So actually, it sort of makes makes no difference. All right. So the, the next question is regarding our trip to Blythe, California. It's from Jessica Schmidt. When you were standing on the riverbanks, what thoughts are running through your mind just listening to the passing cars and the water rush by? It was actually really profound and probably the most profound moment um, for me during the recording of the podcast because um, I always knew where Resendiz was talking about. I just wondered, you know, I wonder if if he ever thought that I'd end up there. Um, and I suppose, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the the description he gave me and the fact that we we were standing exactly where he would have committed these murders. Um this sense that, you know, I believed him. Why on earth would you be so specific about some something and, and a, a geographical location if you'd just never even been there and never done anything there? Um, and I, I don't think I mentioned this in the podcast. Uh, I think I might have done on the Facebook page, but um, he sent me a letter. I had one letter from Resendiz and it was really just a sentence. Um, and I had written to him saying, you know, again, one of my open-ended questions, can you give me more information about some of these confessions? And he'd just written back and said, uh, I've done all I can. Um, you know, you, you, basically, it's up to you. And I remember him using the term, you can go only the long way. 
I don't know what he meant by that, but I'm assuming it means that, you know, you're doing a good thing by following up on these confessions. I've been really bad, you know, and, and I'm telling you the truth. And, you know, you're, you, what you're doing is 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 good for these people. You're going to you're going to help them. And you could argue we have been going the long way these last six months or yeah. so. Yeah, couldn't have got much longer. <laughs> OK, next one from Scott Thomas Stewart. Where will the series continue from here? Will you come back with more Resenders or will you move on to another person? Well, certainly if there are any developments on this particular case or, or what we've sort of ended up, um, you know, the way the podcast has, has gone, which is to dwell more on the Mascaro case. Um, certainly if there are any developments there, we would want to do uh, the odd bonus episode to update people. And so, of course, if you've subscribed, they'll just appear in your podcast feed. Um and certainly we'll update the, the Facebook group as well uh, on developments there. As far as the second season is concerned, I can pretty much uh, say that it won't be on the same subject. So it won't be on Resendez. Um, but there is talk about a second season. And me and Pete uh, uh, have got a lot of what we think are pretty good ideas already. Um, so, you know, it's really important to subscribe again, because when we do uh, launch a second season... Uh, it's going to appear in those feeds. You told us last week that someone had been in touch uh, regarding a murder in Kentucky they think Resendez committed. Did you get any indication from them where they were going to take that and, and a kind of timescale involved? Um, Timescale-wise, he said that it was in the very early stages of sort of investigation and interviews and stuff, and it was gonna gonna take a long time. I think he used, um, I think he said he, at least a year. So, um, you know, I'm definitely, I've told him to to keep me in the loop, and um, if and when we can talk about that uh, specifically, and you know, I mean, I'm talking about interview the people involved, then you know, I'd love to. So the next one is from another friend of the show, Simon Cruiser. Has this investigation shaken whatever faith you had in the US judicial system? Um, that's a good question. I want to say I want to say no, and I'll, I think because, in a way, I think the fact that we're able to make this podcast and interview inmates as easily as we have, um, and expose what could be an injustice shows that you know there is something in the system that um enables you to do this i just i'll just contrast this with the british system now the home office uh doesn't allow generally speaking journalists to interview inmates in prison um i'm not sure of the current rules on this but certainly when i looked into it the rules were that if you could prove that there had been a possible miscarriage of justice, then there might be grounds with which you could interview an inmate in prison. But otherwise, it was sort of a pretty blanket no. Um, and I think that's uh, dreadful, actually. I think that it's... Um, I know what their reasons are. They don't want inmates convicted of heinous crimes to have a public mouthpiece, which could be... Um, harmful, uh, upsetting to victims' families. And I totally understand that. But I also think that, um, you know, on balance, it's probably better that we are able to expose um, possible miscarriages of justice, which can involve interviewing inmates that we think might be the victims of that. Um, 
uh, like we can in in Texas. Texas actually, although it has a bad reputation for you know criminal justice when it comes to the death penalty, it's executed more people than any other state. Um, it actually has a fairly progressive, um, uh, you know, relationship with media access, um, which, you know, I'm thankful for. The final question comes from Russell Watson in Coventry. Why do you spend time with dangerous criminals? Do you wish you still hung out with rock bands? Um, I have to say my seven-year-old daughter probably wonders the same thing because she knows that I'm making this podcast and I won't let her listen to it. So she probably wonders why I don't interview people that she can listen to as well. Um, honestly, I felt, I've, I think without trying to offend rock stars, I think they're pretty boring generally. Actually, there are, there are some interesting ones, but um, uh, I find, I, I, I just find writing about criminal justice interesting. It's not, it's not about interviewing dangerous criminals because a lot of the people that I think journalists want to write about, um, you know, when you cover criminal justice is because there are some, there's some issue with their conviction, uh, whether it be an innocence claim or whether it be, you know, in the cases that I've written about, um, as far as death row inmates are concerned, problems with race, problems with um, mental illness, uh, problems with prosecutorial misconduct, just terrible trials that, you know, um, you're sort of exposing wrongdoing in the criminal justice system. And that's what I find interesting. It's not about the, the individuals, really. Great. Well, that's your lot, Alex. No more questions from me. Some good ones there. Very good ones. Al, you sort of hinted at it a couple of times there, but do you want to tell us a little bit about what's coming up in next week's podcast? Yeah, we've got another special final. I mean, actually, I suppose next week really is the final episode of Dead Man Talking. Um, you know, last week was the final episode of the investigation, but next week is it completely. Um, and a few days ago, I got an email from somebody who uh, knew Resendez and I checked him out, made sure he was who he said he was, and he is, and he hadn't offered to do an interview. He was just giving me some information. Um, but I asked him if he would come on the show for the last episode, and I thought that it would be interesting for you to hear what he had to say. So um, yesterday, I phoned him up at his home in Texas, and we spoke for about 20 minutes. So um, next week, you're going to hear, hear from him and um, and then that'll be our lot. So thanks so much for listening and join us next week for the final episode of Dead Man Talking. Dead Man Talking is a production of DMT Media and Audio Boom. The show is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our theme song is The Railroad by the band Goodnight Texas. And you can check them out as always at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas. And you can still join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash 
Dead Man Talking, where you can follow any legal developments. And we're tweeting at Dead Man Podcast, and you can email us still at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.